it was this pink cup or a sippy cup that I had in the kitchen, so I'm going with the pink cup today. <laughs> Just get that out of the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that we're about to engage in. And I pray that you help us hear a, a better sermon by the Spirit and by your word than a man can preach. You know our hearts and you know all the ways that we are so desperate for encouragement, to be encouraged along the way. And you, Father, know as well the ways that our hearts are blind to our own sin. And we need conviction from your spirit and from your word. So in all the ways that you know, we need encouragement, we need conviction. Would you help us by your spirit, through your word, just now. We love you, and we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. We need to be saved. What do we need to be saved from? Well, we need to be saved from many things. We need to be saved from allergies in Texas. So we take medicines. We need to be saved from political fractions and corruptions, so we vote and we campaign. The term mental health is a phrase which is now common in our language today, and it carries behind it a whole host of diagnoses, which bring with it a host of problems and salvations. We need to be saved from cancer, and we need to be saved from spy balloons. So we have therapy, chemotherapy, and we have missiles. We need to be saved from accidents, so we have seatbelts. How can we be saved from the wrath of God? The great need of salvation for mankind is not first and primarily, does extend to these, but it's not first and primarily physiological, mental, or political. I think we as, as humans have a tendency to be very excited about things that are less important and not excited enough about the things that actually matter. For example, this is a type of human error that we can make. In recent weeks, the U.S. military recently shot down a Chinese spy balloon. It floated down from Alaska, uh, airspace, all across the entire, you know, the entire continental United States, including over U.S. military sites, uh, before our military personnel finally shot it down over the East Coast. Meanwhile, weeks later, two more balloons were spotted over the continental United States, and they, instead of waiting for days or weeks to be shot down, they were shot down immediately. As it turned out, we spent $400,000 per missile so that we would be saved from two, maybe $100 weather balloons. What do we really need saving from? And are we judging it correctly? What really is our problem? 
We're so capable of being so overly anxious and worried about things that are less than our greatest concern. Our greatest concern is the just penalty of sin and the wrath of God. Do you rightly estimate your need for salvation? Do you rightly value salvation that is offered from God? I told this story years ago. I think I heard it from a sermon that my, my dad preached. But it's been years enough now I can recycle it. A man once in his house, was once in his house, it began to rain. He was watching the television and the news came on and said, it's time to evacuate your city because there's a flood coming. The man decides that instead he's going to trust God to save him. So he stays. The water begins to rise and come up over the curb out in the street. About that time a fire truck drives by through the water. The man waves them off. Instead, deciding he'll trust God to save him. The waters rise up to his front porch. And several hours later, a boat comes by, offering him a ride out of the city. The man waves him off, trusting God will save him. And the waters rise, and the man gets out and climbs up onto his roof, and a helicopter comes by. A man lowers down a rope and offers to give him a ride and save him. He waves him off, knowing he can trust God to save him. The waters rise, and they sweep him and his home away. In death, he asks, why did God not save him? To which God replies, I sent you a fire truck and a boat and a helicopter. Do you know that you need saving? And do you know what God's plan for actually saving you is? Do you know what it is? And do you love it? Do you, do you treasure it? And are you thankful for being saved? In Acts 2, we see that God has sent Christ to save us from the penalty of sin, which is death. But what does man think of God's salvation when they hear it in the way they do in Acts chapter 2? In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God descends from the heavens down to the earth through the sound of wind and the vision of fire, drawing men from all over that city, from all the nations, and it empowers the apostles to speak in foreign languages so that Jews and proselytes from various nations, from every nation under, the heaven, under heaven and on the earth, they hear the mighty works of God, that Jesus has died for them, that He rose from the dead, and the Spirit empowers it to be heard in their own language. And the response of some is, man, these guys must be drunk. Something begins at the first preaching of the gospel empowered by the Spirit in the book of Acts here in chapter 2. Something that continues through the book. We have a record of the, very, the varied responses toward the news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Some will totally surrender their lives to God in faith, trusting Him to save them in every way. Trusting in Jesus Christ as salvation while others will mock and jeer and hate and persecute those who trust Jesus for salvation. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not trusting Jesus, or you're not sure if you are a Christian, 
I hope today is that you would leave having the opportunity to consider the salvation that is offered to you from God. Hear what the Bible says. If you're here today and you are a Christian, what has been your heart about your salvation in the last 24 hours, the last 24 days, or so far this year? Have you talked and thought like a saved person? Today, my hope is for us all to see that God, what God has done to bring about salvation in the person of Jesus Christ and that we might turn from mocking and doubt and disbelief and hopelessness and discouragement to amazement and faith that God saves us through Jesus Christ. Today at the end, we are going to see what God Himself has done to save sinners through Jesus Christ so that we can reply in faith. We're looking today at Acts chapter 2, which Megan read for us. And at the end of Luke's account, which is kind of part one of the book of Acts, Luke's gospel, at the end, Jesus dies on the cross in the place of sinners. And then He raises from the dead. And then having raised from the dead, Jesus commands His disciples to wait for them in Jerusalem. Those who've been following him, Jesus is now telling them, wait. And then Jesus ascends into heaven where he rules and reigns, the right hand of the throne of God, alive today. And here in Acts 2, we have that moment, the beginning of Acts, where the Spirit of God comes and empowers them just like Jesus said he would. And they begin to speak in various languages so that Jews and proselytes from every nation can hear about salvation through Jesus in their language. But we see some think the apostles are drunk, even though it's early in the morning. How does Peter respond to the accusation that he and the apostles are, are drunk? That, that, that this is silly, that they lost their minds, that this is nonsense. Peter's explanation is this. This could be your summary. This could be your title for the sermon. God is accomplishing His plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. God is accomplishing His plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now this morning I think we can see six ways that God is accomplishing His plan of salvation through Christ. Six ways that God is accomplishing His plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. You might be able to find seven. You could preach this faithfully and say there's, there's four. But this is just the, the compilation that we put together this morning in this sermon to carefully look so that we can see all of the ways that God is working salvation Himself for sinners through Jesus Christ. This is just a, a structured way for us to carefully walk through the Bible, paying careful attention to what it says so that we can see clearly the salvation that God is accomplishing through Jesus Christ. His plan of salvation for sinners. Point number one. Verses 2, 17 through 18. God poured out His Spirit for the proclamation of salvation in Christ. God poured out His Spirit for the proclamation of salvation in Christ. Look at Acts 2, 17 through 18. Peter is quoting the book of Joel to explain what is happening when they're speaking in these very tongues. 
He quotes saying, And in the last days it shall be, as God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, <clears throat> and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. What is Peter's first defense? Peter's first defense, well, his first defense was it's 9 o'clock in the morning, no one's drunk. But his first defense from Scripture is this is why you are hearing men speaking in tongues. They're not drunk, it's, it's the morning, the last days have begun. The, the time between when Jesus resurrected and when he will return is now, the last days in the plan of God's salvation, that's the time we're, we're in. And God is now going to pour out his Spirit like he promised in the book of Joel so that God's Spirit is not limited to Moses, it's not limited to David or the prophets. He's giving his Spirit to all, even younger people, even older people, even the poorest people, even the nobodies in society can receive the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what's happening here when these fishermen from Galilee are the very ones proclaiming the good news about Jesus being our salvation. Peter is saying the prophet of God said this was going to happen years and years ago. And so beginning here in Acts 2, the spirit-empowered witness of Jesus has continued through history and around the world and has reached us and you here today. And now it's going to continue to go on and on and on to the rest of the world to tell people about Jesus. Even financial support from our church is helping send missionaries around the world. What started with 12 apostles telling about Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit is permeating the whole earth during these last days. And here's simply how salvation happens People hear the good news that Jesus died on the cross for their sins in their place. And they in turn hear that good news and they repent and they turn from their sins, they turn from their idols and God saves them from wrath and hell because they have put their faith in Jesus and God is just and merciful. He's the just and the justifier. He accepts Jesus on their behalf. And that is the testimony of every single member of our church. We don't really have that unique testimonies. Our testimonies are all the same in this church. We were bound and deserving hell because of our sin, but God saved us the hearing of Jesus Christ so that we could then have faith. And that begins by the Spirit-empowered proclamation of salvation in Jesus Christ. You might wonder, well, this text says they're going to prophesy. Why are you saying proclamation? Why are you saying preaching? The word simply generically means speaking inspired utterances. Peter's doing what Acts 2, 17 through 18 is saying. That's his point. Joel 2 is what I'm doing right now in your midst. Preaching, proclaiming, heralding, prophesying in that sense that Jesus is the Christ and He is God's salvation for us. How do He and the apostles do that? God empowers them by His Spirit to proclaim the salvation in Jesus so that all can hear and be saved. Second way God is accomplishing salvation through Jesus Christ. Salvation in Christ is attested by mighty works of God. Salvation in Christ is attested by mighty works of God. 
Look there in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, the next two verses. Again, still quoting the prophet Joel from many years ago. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. What about these signs of blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun turning to darkness and the, the moon turning to blood? Peter seems to reference this immediately in his explanation in the next verse. Look in verse 22, a few verses later. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. In other words, Peter is saying Jesus is doing this. So if you look at the structure of Acts 2 and how Peter engages Joel chapter 2, he responds to the question about the Spirit and why everyone's talking about this with Joel chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. And then he explains the fulfillment of Joel 2, 19 and 20 in verse 22. What would these be? These mighty works, these heavenly works and earthly signs, all mighty works that accompany Jesus' life and ministry from his birth would be the first fulfillment. Anything from his death to his resurrection, when Jesus calmed the sea, when he healed the lame, when he tells the future about his own crucifixion, in his earthly compassion, in his telling Peter where to catch fish on what side of the boat, in raising little girl from the dead. It would include all the heavenly wonders of when the clouds turned dark when Jesus was crucified, and the earthly sign when the curtain between man and God was torn from top to bottom in the temple. This is an apocalyptic language for cataclysmic events, world-changing, cosmic-shifting events. These are God's personal attestation that Jesus is His Son, His salvation. A man, but attested by God's mighty works. This is what the mighty works of God mean in Jesus' life. I still remember vividly reading years ago a book by a well-known atheist named Christopher Hitchens, who has now passed away. One of the arguments of Christopher trying to explain the silliness of the Bible, in his view, is that God and Jesus would not immediately heal all blind people. The Christians have this faith about Jesus healing blind people, but somehow there's still all these blind and sick people on the earth. Why, Christopher asked, if Jesus could heal blind people, why doesn't he heal blindness? Why doesn't God heal all lame people? I think it's a valid and interesting question. The question is essentially this. What do the mighty works of God in the New Testament, what do they actually mean? What are, what are they for? The mighty works of God were not signals that right now Jesus is going to make everything new. All right now, with one zap. But that God is making everything new. And He is accomplishing His plan of salvation through this one man Jesus, this Jesus, this man of Nazareth, through heavenly wonders and earthly signs as attestation that Jesus is the Christ and that through Him you can have something which is far greater than having your eyes see. Far greater than having your legs work. You can have a greater salvation. Your sin is forgiven by God. It's like in Mark 2 when the lame man is let down through the roof and his friends let him down so that Jesus could, could heal him. This is a favorite story by many. 
What happens in that story when the friends let, let down the, the layman? What did Jesus said? The first thing Jesus said to that man was not, you're healed. You got good friends. That's not the first thing Jesus said. The first thing Jesus said was, your sins are forgiven. Why? Jesus did not come to heal all blindness or all lameness then. You can look in Revelation 21, 22 and read about that coming. But he healed the blind and he healed the lame in order to show that he had the power to forgive sins as God himself. That's the salvation that he came to accomplish. And the mighty works of God are attesting those things. And notice when Jesus says he your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees who are watching in from the windows, they are not happy. Why? Because they know that means he's taking himself to be in the place of God. Do something that only God can do. Yeah, anyone can heal people. It was a ridiculous thought. But when you start forgiving sins, now, now you're committing blasphemy, Jesus. Which is interesting because it's exactly, exactly what the signs and the wonders were attesting to all along. That Jesus is of God. That He is offering the salvation of God, which is the forgiveness of sins that we've committed against God. The life of Jesus is accompanied with miracles, resurrection, ascension. As you read through the New Testament, and you see the signs and wonders through and around the life of Jesus and His apostles, even His apostles here in Acts 2 and in Acts chapters 4, 5 and on. God is attesting, this is the Son of God. This is how you are saved. Number three. Salvation in Christ is God's definite plan. Salvation in Christ is God's plan. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and now the empowering of the apostles by the Spirit of God is the definite plan of God. Look at Peter's explanation in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. How did Jesus get to the cross? Let's think about this for a minute. How in the world did Jesus, the Son of God, go to die on a cross? A lot of moving pieces led to Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus intentionally went into Jerusalem knowing that they wanted Him dead. Likewise, Judas, betrayed one of His own, Judas betrayed Jesus. And the chief priests and the religious leaders who should have known that this was the Son of God, they wanted Him dead for blasphemy. They did not believe that He was God. And ultimately, the Romans crucified Him. But all of those earthly historical events, those were God's definite plan. At the center of the movement of history is the definite plan of God. Whatever's going on, God has a definite plan. Why? Would God plan for Jesus to die? And why would God Himself, as Peter says, deliver Him up according to His definite plan? Because God's plan is to save sinners. That's God's plan. God's plan is the plan of salvation, to save sinners who've sinned against Him and deserve His wrath. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1, 7-10. In Jesus we have redemption through His blood. That's the blood that He shed on the cross as a sacrifice. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. And, and what would give us that according to the riches of His grace? Which He, which God, lavished upon us. And all His wisdom and insight 
making known to us the mystery of will, His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. And what He set forth in Christ, look at Ephesians 1.10, is the plan for the fullness of time. And what does that plan do? It unites all things in Him, in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. There's not a plan that God has in heaven. There's not a definite plan that God has on earth that is not centered in all time around the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. God's whole plan. You could spend the whole fullness of time and you can't find a second in time. You can't find a spot in heaven where God's salvation for mankind is not tethered to the definite plan to save sinners through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And so it was Jesus, it was Judas, it was the chief priest, it was the Romans and the Pharisees, but it was God who according to His definite plan delivered Christ up to the cross to be crucified that we might be saved from our sin. Fourthly, chapter 2, verse 23, salvation in Christ was foreknown by God. It was foreknown by God. Nothing caught God by surprise. God's not making this up as He goes. God's not responding to events in time. He foreknew salvation. It says in 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew. Peter was expressing that Joel 2 means God knew this already. What was happening in Acts 2. The gospel of Jesus and His pouring out of the Spirit, they were foreknown by God. God had foreknowledge of His whole plan of salvation. This foreknowledge separates God from all other gods. When Israel was betraying God with the gods of foreign nations in the Old Testament, this is in part what God said to them in Isaiah 41. God taunts the foreign false gods by addressing them directly in Isaiah 41, verse 23 to 24. God says, speaking to the idols as it were, tell us, idols, what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. I'm not good at math, but I think less than nothing is a metaphor. An abomination is He who chooses you. He says this in Isaiah 46, 8-10, through 10, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, ye transgressors. Now speaking to His people Israel, He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God has a plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and He has perfect foreknowledge of it. And it separates Him from every God 
and every hope and plan for salvation that we could possibly conjure up ourselves on the earth. In January, a special presidential envoy for the climate, John Kerry, joined the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, where climate change was the main topic. When Kerry was interviewed about the plans they were making to save the climate, he stated this, When you start to think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, a select group of human beings, are able to sit in a room and come together and actually talk about saving the planet. And this is a part of the media that's been having fun with in particular, at least at the beginning of the year. He added, I mean, it's almost extraterrestrial to think about saving the planet. He added, if you say that to most people, most people think that you're just a crazy, tree-huggering, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, or whatever, and there's no relationship between the two people. But really, that's where we are. In an extraterrestrial-type experience, planning to save the planet, he means. Now, here's, I, I, to, to this degree, I would actually agree with John Kerry. To, to, to sit around and talk about saving the planet... It's like having this experience that somehow makes yourself external to the planet and to the need for saving. Yeah, you're extraterrestrial. It's like you're looking in on the planet and you're going to be doing the one saving the planet. You become the planet's savior rather than being the thing on the planet which needs to be saved. It misses one, what we actually need saving from, however, our sin against the creator who made the world and the climate. And that God himself is the one who is truly, quote-unquote, extraterrestrial. He is the one outside the world. He is the judge over the whole cosmos. He can save us. And one of the proofs that God is the one outside of us who can save us is his fort. God has never joined a committee in Switzerland to plan the salvation of the world. Because he knows it. He planned it. It's his. And he's the one who saves us from our sin, the death that we deserve. Chapter after chapter after chapter, God is the one who knows. Like he's the one outside the earth. And his knowledge is even outside of time. He has made known the end from the beginning. He knows and he's accomplishing his plan of salvation which he spoke beforehand, Christ crucified for the sins of mankind, salvation for all who would believe in him. Number five, God accomplishes salvation in Christ by the hands of lawless men. Look at verse 23, Acts 2, 23. Peter continues, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In, in accomplishing his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, God is not limited to kind of good spiritual things or heavenly things or invisible things. 
The accomplishment of his plan by his hand is entire, if you will, terrestrial. He is sovereign over every history and the doings of mankind. Nothing ever happens on earth because God is up in heaven and out of control. It was both God's good and definite plan that Jesus die and it was the wicked, evil plan of lawless men that Jesus die. It was God who delivered Jesus up and it was the Jews who had Jesus crucified and killed. It was God who delivered Jesus up and it was the Romans who crucified Him. Peter is saying something astonishing. You guys killed the Savior You handed Jesus over to those lawless men on the earth and you walked right into God's plan. Consider the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge and the power for God to accomplish His plan of salvation in Christ on the cross for sinners at the hands of lawless men who don't give a rip about God's plan. may seem from our perspective Now, look around the world like lawless men are having their way. It may seem from our perspective like lawless men rule the world. Be assured, God never, ever had a plan that was thwarted by some man. He has, and He is, and He will accomplish His plan of salvation through Christ, even by the hands of lawless men. And lastly, number six, God raised Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And see how God is accomplishing his plan. God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised him up. It was impossible that Christ be held by death. It was impossible that death could have victory over Jesus. It was impossible. It's the life of God versus death. And Jesus overcomes death. It's not just a matter of is Jesus' death and resurrection moral victory. It is. Or historical Credible event, it is. Or the justification of Christ that He is the Messiah, and it is. But more than that, it wasn't even possible. It wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. Jesus' life is how He can stand as our representative, as as a priest between sinful man and a holy God, and He can offer His blood for our sins forever. Why? Because He can't die. He can't die again. It is impossible for Him to die again. He is the high priest that we need in eternity because He, Hebrews 7, 16, says it like this, He, Jesus, has become a priest not on the basis of, of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, Jesus didn't become the high priest, us, you know, serving between us and God for our salvation, offering His blood. He he didn't get into that role as priest in the heavenly presence of God because He was descended from Aaron, because He was descended from 
the Levitical priesthood, or even because he was descended from Melchizedek himself, as it says. But on what basis did he become a priest? Hebrews 7.16, by the power of an indestructible life. You can't kill Jesus and he stays dead. He died for our sins. Romans 6 says he will never die again. The whole point of our salvation is sharing in that eternal life. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, that is, by faith we are united with His death, Romans 6, 5, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Death can't keep us dead either. Like Christ has raised from the dead, we too can be saved from death by God raising us up in Christ Jesus. Raising us up and saving us from the very penalty for our sin, which is death. The hope that you have for facing the penalty of your sin, which is death, is not that you could crawl out of it. That you could be so good that God would say, we're going to let this one go. The great hope is that God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for him to stay dead. And that only through his resurrection can you be saved. His resurrection is not just something that he did. It is a salvation that he offers. But what has God done? Poured out his spirit for the proclamation of the gospel. He attested to salvation in Christ by mighty works. It's a definite plan centered on salvation in Christ, which is accomplishing and coming true. He foreknows all the plans of salvation in Christ. He accomplished the salvation in Christ, even by the hands of lawless men, his sovereign orchestration of history and people and times and places. And God raised Christ from the dead for our salvation from death. Application. Three things. Number one, make sure that there's no mocking in your heart toward God. Turn from mocking God. And as Peter is preaching the words of God, there are those who are mocking and jeering at Peter and the apostles who are speaking in tongues, telling people about Jesus. And central to Peter's response is that this is all of God. I mean, did you see that in like every sentence of Peter's explanation? This is all of God. And this is His salvation for you. You mock this, you mock God. You mock this, you say no to this, and you reject this. You reject your own salvation. You mock God's salvation from heaven. What other extraterrestrial plan of salvation is there in the heavenly court? Perhaps for you this all sounds a bit drunk. Like we're spending $400,000 saving our country from kids club weather balloons. Is it real? Have you thought about what's really wrong with mankind? And what do we really need saving from? 
we don't need to save to save the climate. We don't need to set up a better government. We don't need a lot of salvations that we think we need. Fundamentally, of all the things God is going to do, fundamentally what we need is salvation from death, the penalty of our sin. And see how God has wonderfully and powerfully beautifully, miraculously, and sovereignly worked salvation for you from your sin in Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Don't mock that in your heart. Don't disregard and disbelieve it without thinking and praying and exploring your curiosity if you need to. Only through Jesus Christ on behalf of God can we be forgiven for our sins. Second application is just be amazed. Be amazed. Christians are those who are amazed by God's salvation in Jesus Christ. They're amazed that they're Christians. Have you been amazed? Maybe you were at one point, but you're not now. Why not? Consider the magnitude of the span of the work of your salvation in all of time and all of history, in heaven and earth, the whole plan of God down into Jesus Christ dying on the cross so that you would not have to suffer the punishment of your sin before God. All the Spirit, the, the work of the Son, the providence, the power pointing to Jesus Christ. It's amazing. I mean, everyone watching in Acts 2 was amazed at first, and then some veered off into mocking. Imagine you go to the Grand Canyon. Have you ever been there? It's pretty unbelievable. It's difficult to describe. Imagine taking your family and, and one of your children the entire time, the whole time that you're at the Grand Canyon, one of your children, this is not difficult for me to imagine, one of your children is playing video games the whole time. And so yes, he sees the Grand Canyon, he, he knows it's there, but he will talk differently from other children when he comes home. There will have been two different experiences of seeing the Grand Canyon. Ask the kid who was playing the games the whole time, have you seen the Grand Canyon? And he'll say, yeah. Yeah, I was there, I saw it. Well, he was looking at video games the whole time. But you ask the child who sat there and stared at the Grand Canyon for hours and thought about the, the depths and the width the time that went into the Grand Canyon, and you ask them, have you ever seen the Grand Canyon? Oh my goodness, it's the biggest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. It's amazing. Now, who saw the Grand Canyon? Well, they both did, but only one did. Everyone in Acts sees, this happens consistently through Acts, sees the, the same thing and they hear from the same spirit, they, they hear the same gospel of Jesus Christ through Acts. But not everyone has believed, not everyone is amazed at all that God has done to save them. One category that you do not have in the Bible is a never amazed Christian. A never amazed Christian. When they heard Peter and the apostles were speaking in tongues, they, they were amazed at what they saw and what they heard. That, that word is mean, it means they were astonished, almost bordering terror. You could say God's salvation is in Jesus Christ. 
the pouring out of the Spirit, and God's accomplishing salvation in Christ, it is astonishing when you think about it, when you stare at it, and you look at it, and you listen to it. Maybe you're a Christian, and you just haven't been that amazed recently that you're just saved. Go to your Bible again. Go back to Life Group this week. Go to an hour of journaling and confessing your sin again. Like one would stand at the Grand Canyon, just spend a few hours this afternoon maybe just looking at how God accomplished salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrected for you. And consider and be warned how the lack of amazement may be just a thought away from mocking. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're wondering what it means to, to follow Jesus. That's not just a mental decision. It's an amazement. It's amazing. It's incredible. We're, our church, we're just happy to be saved. It's a wonder to us that God would forgive our sins and work all these things together. Now, Jesus down the cross for our sins and then work it out through the empowerment of the proclamating, the, the proclaimed gospel by the Spirit that we would hear about it all these generations later. So we sing. We sing and we pray. We thank God. Christians, we're amazed. And thirdly, call upon the Lord for salvation. God poured out His Spirit for the preaching of the gospel, attested This man is the Christ by mighty works, according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, a plan he sovereignly accomplished by the hands of lawless men, and he raised Jesus from the dead so that you could be saved by calling on him. Would you call on the Lord today for salvation today by having your sins forgiven today? You need not fear death because you trust Jesus was raised you need not fear God's going to make you pay for your sins ultimately in eternity because Jesus poured out his blood on the cross to pay for your sins. And so Joel foresaw what Peter quotes in chapter 2:21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friends, it has come to pass. It is now. You can be saved. What does it mean to call upon the Lord? It sounds like kind of an old King James churchy phrase. Call upon the Lord. It just means to call someone for help. God wants to be called upon to save you. That, that by your faith you would cry out to God, please save me and forgive me for my sins. That He, he wants that. He wants you to call upon Him. He's not, he's not angry that you're bothering Him about being saved. Do you see the things that God has done to accomplish salvation in heaven and earth? Call upon Him. Cry out to Him. God, save me. Forgive my sins. And the Bible says He is just. He will forgive your sins if you come and confess and believe in Christ. You know, people who are good at things, they don't mind being called upon for the things that they're good at all the time. They enjoy it. Colette's dad is a physician and it's like every time we're hanging around, someone is calling him from his office or a patient. He's always getting called upon for some medicine, or for some advice, or for some counsel. Imagine what it's like being Darren Hampton. I mean, the man just gets called upon all the time. Just come fix everything. 
I called Jim Kildo this week and said, my wife, I mean, imagine how this is, my wife said the van is doing this, where we're translating sounds from the van to me, to Jim, saying, can you just interpret this for us? <laughs> God loves to be called upon. Because he wants to save. He, he has accomplished your salvation from death that you deserve for your sin. Go to him very simply in prayer today, in faith, saying, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Thank you. Thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel, the good news. you accomplished your plan of salvation through Christ for us. And we pray, God, that you would help us leave here today turning from mocking to, to faith and our hearts lifted up in amazement that we are saved and call upon you asking for forgiveness to be saved. We give you praise and glory the mighty works that you have done and shown yourself your love and your grace in Christ Jesus for us. That's what you are doing in the world and we thank you, Father. We thank you for it. I pray that you would help us this week live like amazed people. Sound like people who are glad to be saved when we're talking to fellow Christians, when we're talking to non-believers and neighbors, oh God, would you help us carry with us Acts 2, the amazing salvation that we have in Christ. We love you, Father, and we pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.